is what we're experiencing, this kind of hedonism, libertinism, kind of navel-gazing or infatuation with victimhood, all of these things that we're witnessing as part of contemporary liberalism, the destruction of traditional values we might put in part of that. Are these things the expected path of liberalism? So what I mean by that, is this liberalism functioning as we should expect, or is this a perversion of liberalism? Well, if we're saying that liberalism kills itself or commits suicide, then liberalism is its own perversion. (laughs) There's no way it can be avoided. I don't think it's quite that serious or in liberalism. And as a matter of fact, I believe that the task of conservatism, and I do count myself politically as a conservative, is to see to it that we save liberalism from the liberals who have stopped believing in it. They've stopped believing in the liberty part of liberalism. So liberalism can be corrected if you understand that it is a kind of imperfect, but still on the whole, beneficial way of thinking. Hi, you're listening to season two of Keeping It Civil, a production of the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University. I'm your host, Duncan Mensch. In this podcast, I interview scholars, writers, and intellectuals about the American political tradition and the state of intellectual life in the United States. The point of the podcast is to have an intellectual exchange of views on political, civic, and social issues in American life. Many of the guests on the podcast are part of the school's speaker series, which invites liberal progressives and conservative voices that we feel are important for the advancement of civil and liberal education today. On today's podcast, I'll be speaking with Harvey Mansfield, professor of government at Harvard University and senior fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. He has written works on Aristotle, Edmund Burke, Alexis de Tocqueville, constitutional government, as well as the virtues of manliness. How dare he? We were very lucky to get this time with Professor Mansfield. In our conversation, we discussed the many problems and contradictions of contemporary liberalism. Is the current illiberal and intolerant turn of politics actually a reflection of liberalism functioning as we might anticipate, or is it a perversion that indicates things have gone seriously off course? Is the liberal project in grave danger? We don't have the answers, but we search for them. Harvey Mansfield. First, I want to talk a little bit about the oddity of being one of the last conservatives, if you accept that label, teaching at an elite university in the United States. Yes, I've been told I'm the last one at Harvard. That's not really quite true. Nor is it true that there are no conservatives at other elite universities, if you want to count Harvard among those. It's true. I don't think that there's been a conservative appointed to Harvard or a self-identified conservative appointed to Harvard that I can recall, say, in the last five or even ten years. Certainly not in the social sciences or even in the humanities. Do you remember that movie from the 1980s? It was an animated movie, The Last Unicorn, where there was a unicorn that was being chased by this bull made of fire yeah. and it was about to go extinct. Do you kind of feel like that sometimes? Yes, except that I'm hardly a unicorn or an oddity in the country at large. So that's one of the oddest things about this, that I am actually closer to the center of American politics than my faculty colleagues are, to say nothing of the administration here, which is even less conservative than the faculty. 
So I don't feel altogether alone. Right. In a larger community, you're hardly unique, but inside academia, and it seems to me so. Obviously, I don't have the amount of experience inside higher education that you do. And I was out of it for about 10 years before I actually went back to graduate school. So between about 2000 and 2010, in that gap between 2000 and 2010, I feel like the amount of social justice tyranny or intolerance or whatever we want to call it really built incredibly between that period of time. And I wonder if you observe something similar or if it's been building much larger in your mind. Uh, it has been building. I'm not sure I would choose those 10 years, but if you noticed it, I expect it was there. There are fewer and fewer conservative voices. If I wanted to be in the higher regions of American education, I would have to conceal my conservatism, which I don't do. And that's why I get the reputation as being the last conservative at Harvard. There are probably some others who are more quiet in the sciences, perhaps. And some others still don't exactly cheer me on, but approve of having at least someone who's here to represent the conservative viewpoint. I would say that's fairly common in my department, the government department, that most people look on me as a, something of an asset <laughs> in a funny kind of way. But at the same time, they're not promoting hires like yours, right? They're not. No, no, that's quite true. When it comes down to actually making a hiring decision, and that's where you have to be really serious. Do you really want this person, say, for life or not? Then one tends to be more thoughtful and less tolerant. My understanding is that you were recently disinvited from a speaking event that was already booked. Is that correct? That is correct. This was at uh, Concordia University in Montreal, Canada. This was at the College of Liberal Arts there, a small section of that large university which is devoted to the teaching of great books. And that's what I've devoted my teaching life to doing. So it was not a strange thing, except that it's very unusual, first, for a conservative to be invited to give a talk, and second, that it be done at commencement because most universities want to show themselves at their best, which usually means what they think is their best, which is definitely not conservative. Also, they have some fear of student protest and maybe some alumni protest, which is what happened in this case, that might spoil the event. So they end up giving the left a kind of veto over the most important university ceremonies. So you were invited to give the commencement, and then you were disinvited. I was. Did they give you a reason? No, that was a funny thing. Uh, <laughs> the letter that I got from the principal there, a man named Mark Russell, was a triumph of uh, lawyerly caution. He didn't want to give me anything to complain about, and therefore he gave himself nothing to apologize for. So Interesting strategy. Was, I, yeah, that's right. So he, he said they couldn't come to a consensus that this was an invitation they should go through with, even though, of course, he had sent a letter which was a promise to invite me. And nothing said about this promise or about free speech or about academic freedom. So were there student protests in regards to your speaking or? No, it wasn't students. It was some alumni of that college who got in touch with the left wing faculty on the college. There's not very many people on that faculty, only 10 or so. And they had a meeting and it was decided to rescind my invitation. Nothing of this was reported to me in the letter of disinvitation that I got. It was just that they couldn't come. We're sorry for your inconvenience. Uh, <laughs> yeah, if any. 
That was what he said, and that was the implication. There's something very interesting going on here, and so I'm going to pick from your own writing. You write that indignation blinds understanding, and understanding, on the flip side, tends to dissipate indignation. Why is there so much indignation in contemporary academe, or even we might even take that further, why is there so much indignation in contemporary liberal culture? I think they've pretty much dropped the goal of understanding. Understanding is something they think they already have, and they don't need any more of it. So they can afford, they think, to be indignant at those who oppose the true understanding which they think they hold. They might not call it the true understanding, but it's the correct, known sarcastically as the politically correct understanding. So it's really quite a fundamental defect in academia today that it has dropped its concern for In practice, if not in speech, it's concern for searching for the truth. Harvard's motto is Veritas, the truth. But Harvard now speaks of its values, and its values are to be against discrimination, uh, what they regard as discrimination. Unfortunately, conservatives are not against discrimination, they think. And so they're not just doubted, they're under a kind of dark cloud. Wasn't there something interesting going on with the way they define discrimination, though, and especially in this concept of representation? And behind the concept of representation are a lot of assumptions that I find really interesting. So there's this assumption that if every group or every gender or every sexual preference, and we now have 50-something genders, if all of these groups aren't perfectly represented in a job category or at a university, then it's assumed de facto that that is the result of discrimination and that that doesn't even need to be proved. And then this becomes the basis for all kinds of measures of redress that have to be taken. Well, there's one thing you said that I think isn't quite correct. They're not in favor of every sex or every point of view. For example, they're not in favor of the male sex. Mm -hmm, Sure. So there are these favored groups or identities or ethnic or sexual groupings, and they're the ones that are vulnerable because they've been victims, declared victims, and their rights are the ones that must be vindicated, and those who oppose it are guilty of the wrong kind of discrimination. But these claims, though, they go beyond the empirical, though, don't they? I mean, aren't claims like white privilege theory or male privilege theory and things like this, which are wrapped up in the concept of representation, aren't they really, in some sense, almost metaphysical? They go beyond reason and tangible examples where basically white people or men are advantaged no matter what their individual circumstances. And people who are not white or who are not men are disadvantaged no matter their individual circumstances. And so in a way, this takes us out of the realm of liberalism because we're not making decisions or even characterizing things based off of individual circumstances. The individual is taken out of the equation. Well, that's true. Everyone's equal. And that's regardless of circumstances, except those circumstances which arise from being a victim. So if you're a victim or can be in some way defined as being victimized, maybe uh, in the past, or at least your grouping, your group was victimized, then you're a recipient and a beneficiary of the new order of things. So that's the way they think. It is, in a way, metaphysical. 
and anti-fact, but the facts they see, they don't like. And the facts that they see are facts of privilege and discrimination. How much of this derives from affirmative action itself? Because it strikes me that this ideology historically coincides in its birth with affirmative action. And then in some respects, you could interpret it maybe as even a gigantic defense of affirmative action. Well, yes, it very much goes with affirmative action. Affirmative action means that one mustn't touch, but rather one must vindicate the self-esteem of victimized groups. And this means that they must be given advantage, you might say a discriminatory advantage, over those who don't belong to those groups. But this is justified on the grounds that the victimized groups have a long debt owed them. But you don't have to prove your victimhood. It's just assumed by category, right? That's right. That's right. You don't have to prove or show that you've been troubled even as long as you belong to one of these declared victimized groups. Well, so I've got a question to pivot off of this and connect this to a larger question about political thought and liberalism. So does this ideology, which we're describing, does it derive from a kind of biological denialism or a certain strange refashioning of race fetishism? Or is it derived from liberal democratic egalitarianism, the same kind of liberal democratic egalitarianism that Tocqueville witnessed and was so fascinated with in the 1830s? Oh, it comes out of liberalism. I would say, although it results in illiberal policies and principles. So it comes out of liberalism because people on the left today aren't satisfied with equal opportunity in general. They say you don't have equal opportunity unless you have an equal starting point. And in order to get an equal starting point, you must be given an advantage. And so the notion of equal opportunity Everybody starts from the same place. And whatever happens afterwards is the result of everybody's individual effort. That point of view is negated and denied because it seems that you never can get to an equal starting place. But also, isn't it just if there aren't equal results, then it's assumed that no matter what, there wasn't an equal starting place. Right. Regardless of even things like interest, right? So, I mean, if you don't even have enough applications for a job or for a certain admissions category, then it's assumed that there's been some kind of bias. Maybe rather than something you could even say as simple as interest. Yeah. Well, there's an assumption of general radical equality Mm -hmm. that talents— And other things that people praise and defer to and admire don't really exist. Or if they do, should be equally distributed or the consequences of them should be. So that's how they go from equal opportunity to equal results. And the result is a great diminishing of freedom. Liberalism is about freedom. And equality is meant to be for the sake of freedom or at least compatible with freedom. But in order to get the equality that is demanded, a perfect equality, You have to make many, many inroads into freedom in order to make sure that things come out equally for everybody. So that's how liberalism runs into illiberalism in that way. In this sense, liberalism is really contradicting itself and maybe even, you could say, eating itself. And so Strauss— who I think was influential on your thought, felt something like this was inevitable with 
the projected path of liberalism going forward. So is what we're experiencing this kind of hedonism, libertinism, kind of navel-gazing or infatuation with victimhood, all of these things that we're witnessing as part of contemporary liberalism, the destruction of traditional values we might put in part of that, are these things the expected path of liberalism? So what I mean by that, is this liberalism functioning as we should expect, or is this a perversion of liberalism? Well, if we're saying that liberalism kills itself or commits suicide, then liberalism is its own perversion. <laughs> There's no way it can be avoided. I don't think it's quite that serious or in liberalism. And I, as a matter of fact, I believe that the task of conservatism, and I do count myself politically as a conservative, is to see to it that we save liberalism from the liberals who have stopped believing in it. They've stopped believing in the liberty part of liberalism. So the liberalism can be corrected if you understand that it is a kind of imperfect, but still on the whole beneficial way of thinking. It's imperfect because it depends on traditional virtues and values and traditional religion that in no way furthers or promotes. So it depends on a kind of moral background or a moral capital that it has a tendency to undermine. And that's why liberalism is always in need of conservatism, conservatism which reminds us of our traditions and also of our traditional principles. Those are not quite the same thing. But liberalism on its in its just its normal functioning, as we just discussed, though, tends to undermine tradition. Yes, it does one carry too far. But when understood sensibly, for example, the virtue of courage, one of the principles of liberalism is the right to life. If you've got a right to life, you've got a right never to behave courageously. But any political regime that sets no value on courage won't last very long. And that is not characteristic of our liberal regime. Yesterday, we had Memorial Day. That's the memorial for those who had the courage to give their lives to defend our freedom. So courage is not at the center of liberal thinking, but it's absolutely necessary for the survival of liberalism. So that's something that conservatives need to be around and to remind liberals that this illiberal thing, courage, is absolutely necessary to them and admirable. Why is it, though, that contemporary people who call themselves liberal, because obviously there's a lot of people who call themselves liberal who actually aren't, as we kind of alluded to earlier, and also kind of muddied the waters because it seems like a lot of conservatives are actually just maybe revanchist liberals is a term I like to use. But why is it there are so many people in the contemporary liberal world, why do they have problems with concepts of virtue and character? In the conservative world? No, not in the conservative world. In the contemporary liberal world, and I mean that in the big, broader sense, it seems like we've gone away from preaching concepts of virtue and preaching concepts of character and even discussions of these things make people very uncomfortable. Well, you could make a distinction between hard and soft virtues, that liberalism does have its virtues, but those are soft ones, like compassion that makes you sympathetic, empathetic, that doesn't steal you to doing your duty as, say, courage, which is a much harder virtue. So liberalism easily defines itself as helping other people, but never by getting them to do their duty or to stand up 
and defend yourself. So liberalism loses its connection to the defense of liberty, which is where it began. So there is a kind of difference between early liberalism, which is a hard liberalism, a liberalism willing to defend itself, and present-day liberalism, which is degenerated. So liberals get known for being able to understand every position but their own or defend every position but their own. So this softness, which is a perversion of liberalism, which is, that is also a degeneration. So it isn't that they're being illiberal, it's that they're not understanding what liberalism requires. That's what I think is interesting, though, about how the education system has evolved, is that people don't tend to really understand what liberalism is. I mean, so I teach a course at ASU, I taught a similar course at University of Texas about the history of ideologies, and at the beginning of the class, I say to my students, what you've been told liberalism is, is not what it actually is. And I say the same thing of conservatism, and it takes me about... mm, at least six to seven weeks to really get them to understand what liberalism actually means. And I wonder, because obviously I don't have as much time behind me as you, if that would have been necessary 40 years ago or even maybe 20 years ago. No, not as necessary. Say before the late 60s. The late 60s, I think, were a great turning point. Before the late 60s, liberals, they were often called Cold War liberals. Mm -hmm. Those were liberals who were anti-communist and who saw the need to stand up to communism. And that's what changed in the late 60s. With the birth of the new left. Yes, the Vietnam War is what they were protesting, and that was a war against communists in Vietnam. It may have been foolish or operated incompetently, but it was anti-communist, and that was why they opposed it. So the liberals lost their fear of the illiberal left, and they started to change liberalism, make it much more empathetic. On the way to being empathetic. But empathetic to what exactly? Yeah, empathetic to people who are vulnerable. So to be empathetic to someone who's vulnerable, you have to sympathize. You have to get down on that person's level. So instead of saying, stand up (laughs) and straighten out and do what you can, they themselves reach down and try to live at the level of those they regard as victims, of the vulnerable. What's the difference, though, between empathy and pity, though? It seems like there's a fine line between these things and that a lot of the sentiment that grew out of the new left may have began with empathy but might have quickly turn to pity. Yes, I I wouldn't make a great distinction between empathy and pity, except that pity still puts you at a level of superiority to those whom you pity, whereas empathy means you get down to the same level as they. This is still compatible with a lot of pitiless rhetoric and action against those who don't share your view of empathy. So the left is by no means empathetic to conservatives or people on the other side. It's funny, I I once saw a student not too long ago on campus wearing a shirt that said, the only thing I'm intolerant of is intolerance, (laughs) which I just, I almost burst out laughing when I saw the shirt because I was like... I wondered if the backside of the shirt was going to say, I don't understand the meaning of irony. (laughs) Yeah. Right. I mean, because obviously if you're intolerant of intolerance, you're intolerant. You're intolerant. Intolerant of something. It's kind of absurd. But I mean, I've seen this shirt more than once. Maybe that means that tolerance is not a policy that you can live with 100%. And that would be something to learn, Mm. that everybody is intolerant of something. Yeah, absolutely. It's impossible to be tolerant of everything. And should we be tolerant of everything? And it seems 
seems like this is where liberalism has really lost its core principles and maybe confidence in itself. And maybe that's where it's turning towards a different stage. And I see in this many people, I think Patrick Deneen's book, which has certainly gotten a lot of attention, Why Liberalism Failed, and obviously many other people have written about this, that we need some kind of maybe even a new political order that goes beyond liberalism, or maybe we just need to revive liberalism. I kind of want to probe your thoughts about this, especially in regards to Machiavelli, who many people see as, to use Strauss's terms, as kind of a bridge between the ancient world and the modern world. As somebody to, a lot of people look back at Machiavelli as somebody who was between these two time periods and maybe somebody we can look for to wisdom. Do you see that? No, I don't. I don't see Machiavelli as a repository of wisdom for us, but he is of great interest to us and he poses a challenge. He poses a challenge to our easy, soft, relativistic morality. And this is what Machiavelli argues against. And it's a challenge because we have to understand why we still believe in the distinction between good and evil and why it makes sense and why one should live according to that distinction. So that's the way in which I would say Machiavelli would be most useful to us. But I don't see him really as as a way station between the ancients and the moderns, but rather as a beginning of modernity. In this, I disagree with Leo Strauss, whom you mentioned, his book called Thoughts on Machiavelli, which is one of the great books, perhaps the greatest book ever written on Machiavelli. And everybody who wants to understand things should read that book. But still, I wouldn't offer Machiavelli as a consolation for our troubles. Then, see, too much tolerance leads to relativism. And then under relativism, you say you have no way of proving that your way of life is better than anyone else's. And that sounds liberal, but then on the other hand, doesn't it apply to liberalism too? Then liberalism can't prefer itself. Remember you calling relativism a kind of lazy dogmatism? Yes, it is. It is. It doesn't really prove that each position is partly right or partly wrong or totally correct. You don't have to study anything. You can just say or assert that different people's values are different and there's no way to measure them or find them commensurate. You can't approve one or the other. Now, the thing is, thing about relativism is that on the one hand, it can lead to softness in which you forget to defend yourself. But on the other hand, it can lead to a hard and even vicious self-assertion because if everything is relative, then that means that I can say, I am better than you and you have no way of refuting it. And there's no principle or reason by which you could. So relativism has this as a flip side of soft relativism is hard relativism. And that's what we're seeing now in the universities. Wasn't that the interesting thing about relativism, right? I mean, that so much of this very intolerant social justice focused ideology that's been really birthed over the last 20 years or so, certainly within the last five, it's become incredibly dogmatic. Its basis is supposedly relativism and postmodernism, which says everything's relative, but yet it's turned into this incredibly dogmatic, anything but relative in application ideology. I mean, there's some incredible irony here, but there's also a logic to it. And trying to figure out the logic there is, you've already alluded to some of it, but there's more. Yeah, the logic is that relativism can have this ambivalent result or consequence of being either soft or hard. Sure, one could talk a lot more about what might be the virtues of hard relativism. So what makes you better at rejecting 
the liberal traditions and asserting new ones. And doesn't that require a certain kind of virtue, which is not tolerance, but insistence on your own superiority? So that's behind some of the academic claims you hear for safe spaces, that there must be a space where people don't have to listen to opposing views. And that's because, because their uh, views are superior, or maybe even those people who are right. in those categories are actually superior. Yes, you know beforehand that those views aren't of any interest or use to you, but they may confuse you or, or trouble you. So you need to get safety from them. And that's how a university becomes the opposite of what a university is supposed to be or used to be. And that is a place where you can hear many different thoughts, including your own, challenged. So that's how the university moves from seeking knowledge to presupposing that it has it and needs to enforce it. You're listening to Keeping It Civil. I'm Duncan Minch, and today I'm speaking with Harvey Mansfield, professor of government at Harvard University and senior fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. I'm Paul Carice, director of the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University. We launched Keeping It Civil because we believe in the power of intellectual dialogue to both renew our civic life and remind us of the value of liberal arts learning. At the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership, we are restoring space for civil discourse across divergent views on human, civic, and academic issues. Our majors and minors undertake a liberal education to discuss moral and political thought, economic thought, and America's ideals and constitutional principles. They study important historical moments and leaders, and they experience leadership challenges through special seminars, internships, and programs. This broad foundation prepares them to be ethical, adaptive leaders in their chosen professions or civil society or in public affairs. We hope you'll learn more about the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University by visiting scetl.asu.edu. The School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University, a new class of leaders. Welcome back. You're listening to Keeping It Civil. Let's continue our conversation with Harvey Mansfield. I want to dig a little deeper into a possible connection to Machiavellian thinking. So you wrote that Machiavelli was the master of politics when politics is understood as aiming to win with no reference to a standard above politics. And he uses the word masters, which he meant as a compliment. So masters dominate. And Machiavelli intended, I guess, and I'm kind of rephrasing your, so you should correct me if I'm getting you wrong. Machiavelli intended to become a tyrant over mankind by imposing a remedy that only the wisest men would consent to. So Machiavelli would basically ruthlessly pursue power, but once he had that power, impose a virtuous principle upon the world. So what's interesting to me about this is what is different about what Machiavelli was trying to do than what a lot of these illiberal leftists who are so dominant on campuses and on social media, what's different from what he was trying to do from what they are trying to do? Well, he's much smarter The main thing, he's much smarter (laughs) than they. In a way, Machiavelli was a kind of tyrant because he wanted to not so much impose as make his principles pervasive. He thought that he had good reason for his principles. But don't they think that they have good reason too, though? I mean, aren't they quite convinced of that? Who, the liberals today? The illiberal left, for lack of a better phrase. The illiberal left, yes. But they don't go about uh, the business actually of convincing people. 
So they make these assertions and they turn the uh, universities into fortresses of their own prejudice. And impose their own prejudice on other people, right? So if you don't hold the same ones, then you will be punished. That's right. So Machiavelli didn't want to do away with philosophy, although he thought that philosophy needed to be fundamentally changed in his self-understanding. And you could find some similarities between his way of thinking and present-day illiberalism. But there's too much that happened between Machiavelli and the and the present in the way of the invention and further development of liberalism that one would have to account for. Well, I'm not necessarily saying that they're consciously summoning Machiavelli, more maybe accidental. And I see a connection in the sense of their fixation on Foucauldian power and that power is everywhere and that it's always imposing and oppressing people. But the way to change things is also to ruthlessly pursue power regardless of the truth. That strikes me as very Machiavellian. Or am I getting it wrong? That's No, I... Uh, uh... <laughs> For Foucault, the effectual truth of liberal principles is power. So what liberals believe in justice, and but the justice they believe in results in many people being imprisoned for crimes. So the effectual truth of liberalism is not liberation, making us freer, but putting us in prison and making us less free. That's his argument. Now, Machiavelli also had an enemy, but it wasn't liberalism, it was Christianity, which has some of the failings in his view as modern liberalism. The Christianity's combination of too soft and too cruel. But aren't a lot of the illiberal leftists also attacking Christianity? Aren't they summoning a kind of maybe misunderstood Nietzscheanism? Yeah, they don't regard it as an important enemy any longer, I don't think. Because the battle has been won? or Yes, the battle has been won. Religion is not, a, for them, a powerful force in thought, in the way that it was for Machiavelli. But I mean, what about this Handmaid's Tale narrative that they're all so interested in? And obviously you can see uh, seeds in it with this recent explosion of very strict abortion laws, which have kind of fed into it. So you don't think the battle's over? Or are we just seeing like maybe the last vestiges of the battle? No, I think that liberals or illiberal liberals today don't think it's necessary to refute or even argue with religion or Christianity. It's purely reactionary. It has no good aspect to it. And certainly they regard evangelical Christians and other pro-life elements as hostile, but they don't think it's necessary to argue. There's no need to engage in a serious discussion about what they're arguing. That's right. So Machiavelli engages in a serious discussion of what Christianity is and what it necessarily does. And he was, I think, the only one in the whole Renaissance openly to criticize Christianity. So that took boldness, and it took argument in his time. The uh, people today, the atheists, if you want to call inherit Machiavelli's arguments without ever using them or even being aware of them. So they don't even have to call themselves atheists. They call themselves secularists. If they even use that word. Yeah, so see, that is not an issue for them anymore. What is an issue is capitalism and the rich and the prejudice. Well, and social inequality and these sorts of things. Those are their main focus, right? Well, so one of the things I think is maybe a, a key difference between Machiavelli and those that we were just discussing, the illiberal left. Machiavelli rejected the efficacy of self-interest, which is interesting because I don't think most people would have seen him as doing so, which certainly contemporary liberals, and I would actually say this of all stripes, people, this is part of liberalism, is embracing the efficacy of self-interest. But Machiavelli's relationship to virtue, I think, was 
confusing. So I'm hoping maybe you could explain it a bit. <laughs> he was in favor of the ancestor of self-interest. He didn't use that term. That came up later in 17th, 18th century, 18th century especially. He spoke of acquisition, that it's necessary to live a life in which you acquire. And that means acquiring from other people. And self-interest implies that your interests can be made compatible with other people's interests. And Machiavelli denies that. He believes very much that politics and life in general is a zero-sum game in which there are winners and losers, and there's no way in which we can all win. So that is a later development of liberalism, arguing that everybody can have his own liberty, and if you follow your self-interest, you will see that you won't claim any more liberty than you would let other people have liberty over yourself. And so it's in your interest to accept limitations on your liberty. That's the idea behind self-interest. So that's interesting because I think if you look at the contemporary illiberal social justice-focused left or this kind of social justice intolerance that we were just describing, I think you could make an argument that they see things similarly, but I also think you could make a very cohesive argument that they see things the opposite way. And if you think about somebody like Robert McKell's, the turn-of-the-century social democrat who eventually wrote a scathing book dismantling a lot of the logic of early socialists and social democrats basically arguing that their primary motive on the surface was to tear down hierarchy, but what they really wanted to do was just create a new hierarchy, which they were at the top of. I think you could make a very similar argument for the contemporary illiberal left, that that's their real goal. But at the same time, are they deluded? Do they not realize that that's their real goal? Or do they, on the surface, reject the efficacy of self-interest, or are they really just embracing it wholesale? I can't really figure it out. Well, it's a question whether your self-interest is to be on top or not. There are people today who argue that it's not in your self-interest to be ambitious because ambitious people run into a lot of trouble and get a lot of criticism. So it's much better to let other people take up those troubling occupations and to be a free writer. And that, that is your self-interest. So this problem isn't really addressed by the left, I don't think. You're right that they're substituting their own hierarchy or oligarchy for the one that they want to bring down, and also that they don't see this or don't understand what they're doing. But they assume that what they want is a universal system that benefits everybody, and they just don't see that it actually benefits only those few who are at the top. And that's because they believe so unreservedly in equality. They don't see that even to run an equal system, you have to have people in it that are unequal. This is uh, very memorably stated in George Orwell's Animal Farm, where Napoleon the pig says, all animals are created equal, but some animals are more equal than others. Mm. And I think you could see a lot of that thinking in the concept of intersectionality, right? So that we should listen to those who have the most pegs on the victimhood board, and those are the people that need to be listened to and promoted and elevated the most. So this idea of they are more equal than other people because of their victimhood. It's a very strange logic, but I see it. The thing is that one category of victim doesn't necessarily add to the other category. So intersectionality would provide a way for people to question the identity politics that's behind it. Because, say, you're a black woman, sometimes that is going to take you in the direction of 
promoting your fellow black folks and other times of promoting your fellow sex and women. And if, say, as happens in uh, Harvard, a couple of black professors are accused of sexual misconduct or of sexual harassment, if you're a black woman, are you going to defend them because they're black? Or are you going to join in the attack because you're a woman? So that might make you think that the whole idea of identity is not as simple as is said to be. Because the idea of identity politics means that everybody has a separate and distinct identity that never gets in the way of another identity. Well, there's something interesting going on. I mean, I had a friend of mine who's an ethnic minority and a conservative tell me that it's actually one of the worst things you can be in terms of gaining the ire of the illiberal left is a conservative minority because they see you as an Uncle Tom or a turncoat, which in their mind is possibly the worst thing imaginable. So it really isn't necessarily even about the particular identities that they see as victims. It's about being one of those identities, but also aligned with their belief system. And so if that's their thinking, then it seems to me that the thought is the key thing, that ideology, it's aligning with their ideology, is the foundation. Yeah, I think that's perfectly true, that a conservative woman doesn't count as a woman. If you're hiring uh, women, and, and yeah, not only do you not want a conservative woman, but that might be the worst thing you could do, because it casts doubt on the whole identity of woman. Because it suggests that to be a feminist is not necessarily to be a woman, but to make a choice. And that's something that you have to do because you're a woman. Mm -hmm. You still have a choice. So again, your individuality is not really respected. Yeah, that same as intersectionality. So those thoughts remind you that your identity is or can be a choice. And this is something that is admitted by the identity groups, only they think that the choice will all be the same. Mm -hmm. So to be a woman, you will necessarily see that you have to be a feminist. So how do we get beyond all this? I want to read you a quote that I found really fascinating, in part because I didn't totally understand it, and I'm really intrigued by it. And I think it relates to trying to move towards a different way of thinking about things. So this is something you wrote. The often unconnected motive of classical Republican interpretations in our day is to find a way to maintain liberal sentiments and to despise the bourgeoisie without falling into Marxism. So to maintain liberal sentiments and to despise the bourgeoisie without falling into Marxism. So this is a very interesting duality that you're posing. And to me, it almost hints at a kind of a red Tory pairing ideology. Have you ever heard that term before, red Tory? No, I haven't. It meant to imply a kind of Venn diagram overlap space between classical conservatism and statist socialism. So red being this statist socialism. And how I'm getting there from this quote of yours is to despise the bourgeoisie, but also maintain liberal sentiments. So it's not a perfect description, but you're certainly alluding to an interesting pairing of thinking. And I'm kind of wondering what you're trying to say. Well, red Tory would mean that both the left and the right are believers in big government in some way or another, <laughs> I suppose. Well, they believe that the government can do positive things. Yeah. Now, well, but what I was talking about is so-called Republican theorists, uh, those today on the left who want to replace liberalism with what they call Republican theory. Mm -hmm. And the scholars who are associated with this are Quentin Skinner at Cambridge and John Pocock at Johns Hopkins. So they have a kind of school of thought which enables them to be on the left but not to be uh, Marxist, that is, not to be caught up in the obvious failure 
of Marxism. And so they look at the Republican theorists, that is, theorists who were anti-monarchical in times when monarchy was more favored uh, mode of government. There were some, and there was a minority of Republican theorists. So, and they want to include even great thinkers like Aristotle and Machiavelli among the Republicans, but they concentrate on English Republicans of the 17th century like Sidney and Harrington, sort of lesser ones. And those people believed in a majoritarian liberalism, liberalism without separation of powers, you might say. That is a liberalism which differed from that of John Locke or Montesquieu and was more favorable to the people or to the radicals among so the do you people. see that as a, a possible solution to our contemporary malaise, or would that only exacerbate things? No, I don't, but I, uh, <laughs> I'd i rather be uh, liberal than Republican, as they understand. And I would say that America is a combination of liberalism and republicanism, because we have liberalism, say, and our Constitution always wants power to be checked, which is characteristic of a liberal Constitution, the separation of powers, on the one hand, and on the other hand, is derived from the people. And that makes it Republican rather than oligarchic. So I would say that the beauty of America is that it combines liberalism and republicanism and not that it asserts republicanism over liberalism. That's what is said about the American Revolution. Or to the contrary, that it asserts liberalism over republicanism and that would be in the Constitution. This is how they see things. Mm -hmm. This enables them to make friends with America, you might say. And so they study America instead of looking down on America as a country of the bourgeoisie. But it seems to me that we've moved very far away from that. And I think that's part of why maybe we're in this strange space. Yeah, we certainly have because feminism, for example, is an absolute captive to the bourgeoisie. It believes in bourgeois careerism that wants equal jobs for women and has no doubts whatever about the goodness of capitalist careerism. Well, yeah, Christopher Lash wrote very articulately about these sorts of things. And, and one of the things that's interesting, I think, that perplexed a lot of people was that how most white women voted for Trump. And a lot of the contemporary feminist circles found that very perplexing. But I think people don't tend to realize that most women don't identify as feminists, at least in the way the contemporary term is defined. I think that's right, but it's complicated. But still, I think it's generally right that most women don't want to call themselves feminists because they think, and I think rightly, that feminism means you're against men. And if you want to get married and be a mother, you can't be totally against men. Mm -hmm. And you have to have some relationship with them. Gloria Steinem said that a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. And yet she was always seen with a man wherever she was. Yeah, uh, I don't know about that. Yes. Okay. That's actually what Camille Paglia wrote at one point. So I'm just kind of following up with her line. But in this kind of malaise that we're in, where do we look to the answers? You know, so Louis Hartz, who I study, who was a colleague of yours at one point, he said towards the end of the liberal tradition, his most famous book, that he hoped that within liberalism itself. And I found this to be an interesting claim. And I'm not sure if I agree. Are the answers to liberalism to the maybe the hopefully the next stage of the Enlightenment within liberalism or are they outside liberalism? That's complicated. The title of his book was The Liberal Tradition in America. 
And the phrase liberal tradition was meant to be a kind of oxymoron, that liberalism is usually against tradition, and tradition is usually against liberalism. But in America, there was no opponent to liberalism. This is what he says. So there was no aristocracy, and therefore there was also no proletariat. So you get the absence both of a reactionary right and of a revolutionary left. And that makes sense as a description of American liberalism, but he thought that because American liberalism didn't have these opponents, it lacked an understanding of itself. The only way to understand it was to look outside of itself. Yeah, look outside of itself, which it can't do. But on the other hand, he also thought that liberalism itself has no problems. He misquoted Tocqueville in the epigraph to his book, where he said uh, America was in the position of having achieved freedom without having to fight for it without having to have a revolution for it. It's interesting that you say no problems, though, because I have a very different interpretation of Hart's. So I would be curious to know where you come up with that. So the misquotation was that he said that we achieve freedom when Tocqueville said equality. It isn't easy to achieve freedom. That's what I meant by liberalism having no problems, because Hart seemed to think that freedom is something that one can attain without having a revolution for. And that means that liberalism is contained with itself. Well, but it's the absence of feudalism, right? So because we didn't have a feudal experience when we went basically straight to liberalism, that we don't really totally appreciate in many senses what liberalism is, and yet we're kind of trapped within it because we're like fish who, you know, obviously fish can't understand water as the, you know, the cliche goes, we're kind of the same way. We don't, all we know is liberalism, so we don't really appreciate or understand it. Yes, I had um, an early history with Louis Hartz. He was a professor of political theory at Harvard. During the time that I was here as an undergraduate, he gave a course that I went to, a seminar in which he uh, first laid out the outlines of his new interpretation. Oh, so you were one of his students? Well, I went to his class. I never studied with him. He was a brilliant lecturer and an attractive thinker, though he had a lot of followers. I was never among them. I wanted to study the Greeks as well as uh, Americans. He had an emphasis on comparative history, which is very unique. And what do you think the reason is that we don't study comparative history more in this country? Because it's a passion of mine, and I tend to I tend to think that Americans don't have a whole lot of interest in other cultures. And I wonder what your, your reaction is to that. Yes, that's perhaps less true right now than it was, say, when I was— very young. Uh, when I was young, Americans hardly ever took trips outside the country. It was a long way away to get to Europe, let alone Asia. So it was just a few intrepid souls or rich people who went there. For example, my parents, my father was a professor. They never went, uh, visited or took a vacation in Europe. I went there before they did. And I think that was typical of educated people and middle-class people at that time. Well, yeah, it's so far, it's so hard to get to a different culture, right? I mean, the boundaries are just so hard, or at least they were until plane travel. Yes, and America had its own food. See, now we have all this array of choices of different cuisines in which to eat, and people become much more sophisticated. And Americans now drink wine. They used to drink only beer (laughs) and whiskey, of course. So in this way, we're much more sophisticated than, than once was the case. And that could mean that we've lost some of the simpler virtues of Americanism as opposed to fawning or imitator of foreign things. And <laughs> it's sometimes good for the life of a republic 
that its people not be too well acquainted with uh, foreigners or have too many relationships. I wouldn't think provincialism as being necessarily a good thing. But you say maybe it is part of the reason why we've been so stable, is I guess what you're alluding to. Yeah. Provincialism keeps you harmonious, keeps you from, from questioning the common beliefs that you live by. So maybe if we actually had more exposure to other cultures, we'd see things that we want and don't have here and become more dissatisfied. Yeah, that's right. And not because we saw something better to do, but just because we get confused and think that what we have been doing or the way we have been living is inferior without having any plan for improvement. If you have a, maybe another 15 minutes, I could poke your brain a little bit about Tocqueville more. I'm an, I, I'm an old man, Duncan. What's that? I'm an old man. I have limited energy. If you want to cut it off now, that's fine. We can do that. Then, yeah, and if, if you don't mind, I, I think I've had my say. Sure, absolutely. <laughs> I absolutely appreciate all the time that you've given me, and it's really been fantastic to familiarize myself with your work and, and obviously to chat about it. Well, it's good of you to do that. Thank you. You've been listening to Keeping It Civil, a production of the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University. If you'd like to learn more about our classes or events or the requirements for a major or minor at the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership, go to scetl.asu.edu to learn more. This podcast was produced by Duncan Mensch with audio production assistance from Central Sound at Arizona PBS. Thanks for listening.